Let's keep your Bibles open and turn to Romans 13. Romans 13. Title of the message, Heavenly Citizens in an Earthly Kingdom. We're stepping out of 1 Samuel for this week as it is 4th of July weekend. However, we are still going to link. There's some similarities um, between what we'll be speaking of today and what we spoke of last week and the week before. And we'll try to link those together. It is 4th of July weekend and it's a time that we take to remember the founding of the United States of America and rejoice over the particular freedoms that we have been given as citizens and that this country has historically enjoyed freedoms that have been foreign to much of history as it pertains to human government. God tells us in His Word, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And it's certainly not a wrong thing to memorialize the founding of this country, nor is it wrong to be thankful for the particular freedoms and blessings that God has afforded to us as United States citizens. The student of church history will find, however, that throughout nearly every age there has always been, almost always been, let me put it that way, tension. Tension between born-again Christians and the earthly governments that rule them. And we find that this tension is directly related to the reality that born-again Christians typically see themselves first as heavenly citizens and then as citizens of a particular nationality or country. They see themselves as heavenly citizens and living under the authority of a heavenly king. A heavenly king whose authority and whose commandments without fail in every government that has ever existed eventually contradict the authority of the earthly ruler. If I may put it this way, at some point in a government's existence, it will always be the case that the government's priorities will directly conflict with biblical priorities. And there's always been in the past 2,000 years, or excuse me, there have been, uh, just a handful. Just a handful of times in history where earthly governments of a physical nation have aligned themselves so well with the biblical purpose and expectation of government that there is no contradiction between being a born-again believer and his loyalties to Jesus Christ and his heavenly home and the earthly government that seeks to rule over them. And in the history of the world, since the advent of the church at Pentecost, I don't believe there has been a government that has ever been more successful at comforting born-again believers with respect to their heavenly loyalties and their earthly loyalties than the United States of America. The United States of America has done better throughout its history at allowing Christians to live in good conscience before God than any government since the advent of the church. For centuries, the United States, through a loyalty to its founding documents and an understanding of the biblical privileges and responsibilities of an earthly government as it operates under divine parameters, not only uh, allowed this nation to be prosperous, but also born-again believers found that for one of the very few times in church history, supporting our earthly government in no way contradicted with supporting our heavenly king. 
And I don't know if, if, if we don't study history regularly or carefully, if, I don't know that that's something that, that regularly comes to our mind, how rare it is that born-again believers could support their government in the way that believers characteristically have in our country while still feeling no contradiction with supporting biblical values and serving our Heavenly King. So ingrained became this philosophy in the United States of being that Christian nation that American patriotism and American Christianity began to meld together, didn't it? To the extent that a believer was seen as having some problem in their relationship with God's Word if they were not, in fact, supportive of their nation as well. But these days are fleeting quickly, are they not? The idea of patriotism being well compatible with biblical Christianity are days that are quickly leaving us behind. To that extent, particularly in these last, this last decade, as we have watched government change and the philosophy drift away from God's design, by the time this generation of the, the church raises up and comes into its own, it's quite possible that the ideals of American patriotism and the ideals of biblical Christianity will be completely opposite poles. So now we as born-again believers in the United States of America find ourselves in an interesting place where we are transitioning into the mindset that the majority of Christians for the past 2,000 years have had by default. A mindset where we live under a government that is hostile to our faith, deeply threatened by our loyalty to our Heavenly Father, far above the loyalty to their earthly authority. But since this is a fairly new phenomena in the United States, and since we are still going through this transition, it behooves us to consider the Bible's teaching on how we as heavenly citizens, those who have accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, how we exercise, how we live under the authority of an earthly government. And then in our application, we'll turn our minds to some very necessary reminders and warnings about how we interact with this government that we have been placed under. We begin by laying a specific foundation. And the foundation is this. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior by placing your full faith in His teachings, power of His death and His resurrection, that you are not of this world. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You have a conscience that has been purged of dead works, cleansed from the guilt of your sin. You have a mind that has been renewed by the Holy Ghost. You see things differently than the world around you. You think differently than those that are unbelievers. You almost feel at times as a fish out of water, a foreigner in a land that is familiar, but is still not home. And all of these feelings are because you are not of this world. You're a new creation in Christ. You are different. Your heart and your mind are filled with the priorities of heaven, not of earth. In Jesus Christ's teaching in John 15 verse 19, he said this, if you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth, that word meaning reject, hateth you. This is the reality. This is the nature of the life that we live as believers. Because we're not of this world, but rather we have come out of this world, we live by a set of rules that transcend this world. And, you know, oftentimes the world doesn't like it. But there's another principle that we need to lay down 
you are of this world. You, excuse me, you are not of this world, but that doesn't mean that God does not want you in this world. In fact, Jesus does want us in this world. In John 17, just two chapters later, Jesus is still speaking to his disciples and he says this in verses 15 and 16. He says, I pray not that thou, speaking to his father, shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. God wants us here. God wants us living in this world, living by the, the, the rules of the Bible, heavenly rules, but on this earth. And if you have never felt, uh, ever felt like a fish out of water, if you've ever felt like a stranger in a foreign land, then you've probably um, felt that way because you're doing something right. Because the testimony of Scripture in every age is that those who have lived according to God's Word have found themselves at odds with the mindset of the world that is around them. And as Paul reviewed the legacy of men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, he said this in verses 13 through 16. He said, These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, their physical country, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And this is the legacy of the believer, that we by faith see a heavenly home, a better country. We place all our eggs in that basket. We live to please our heavenly king, and we long for the day when we will be at rest with him in his kingdom. But as God has chosen in his sovereignty to leave us upon this earth, he has also chosen in his sovereignty to ordain on this earth human government even though Christians often find themselves at odds with the values of those rulers. And if God has ordained Christians to live on this earth and to not just be taken away, and God has ordained human government to rule on this earth, then it stands to reckon that there is some way to reconcile living as a Christian with being under a human government. And that's what Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 13. That's where I asked you to turn. That's where we will find ourselves now. Let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 6. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is a, the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For, the, for, for this cause pay ye tribute taxes also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. 
Paul begins his teaching in Romans 13 as he transitions. Uh, he's talking. He's been talking in Romans 12 about about living as a Christian, walking honestly among those that are without. And then he speaks of the relationship between the believer and government. And he begins by making a definitive statement that human, every human is charged by God with the responsibility of submitting themselves to human governance. And Paul's appeal here is on the basis of the fact that God has ordained government, not just the concept of government, but literally that the men and women who are governing in the world right now are ordained by God. God has allowed them to be there. It doesn't mean that God always approves of how they are ruling, but it does mean that God has allowed them to rule. And as we consider this concept, there is no better place to understand the idea that God is the one ruling over individuals than Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, we find what might be one of the, perhaps the most unique chapter in all the Bible. It's written by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't an apostle, he wasn't even a king in Israel. He was the king over the pagan nation of Babylon. And if, if the prophecies that Nebuchadnezzar saw are in fact accurate, then Nebuchadnezzar is most likely the most powerful and greatest king that's ever lived on this earth. And Nebuchadnezzar is the man that wrote the fourth chapter of Daniel. And in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar says that he has a dream. And he turns to Daniel to interpret this dream. In this dream, the king sees a tree, and the tree grows large, and the tree grows strong. It reaches in the heights of heaven. It has beautiful leaves, plenteous fruit, and the scriptures tell us that by this tree, all of the animals of the earth were fed. And this was to be a symbolic representation of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, his greatness, that he is that tree, that he is strong, that he is fruitful, and that his reign benefits, the entire world benefits from his reign. But as Nebuchadnezzar continues this dream, he tells Daniel that, uh, that there was a cry, and a watchman cried and said, cut down the tree, cut the branches off, cut the leaves off, shake every leaf off of the tree, Tear it all down. And so Nebuchadnezzar is watching as this great, strong, beautiful, plenteous tree is cut down, as all the branches are cut off, as all the leaves are shaken off of each individual branch. There's no fruit. There's no leaves. There's nothing. Nevertheless, the watchman says, leave the roots. Leave the stump. Don't remove the bottom. And let it stay in the grass of the field and let it be watered by the dew of heaven. And, and in the prophecy or in the dream, he says, let the heart of this stump, which was the heart, uh, become the heart of a beast until it turns into the heart of a man. And he says, and seven times would pass over it. A strange dream. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what was going on. He asked Daniel. Daniel interprets the dream and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. You're a king of greatness and prosperity, but God will cut you down, Daniel says. And he says this, beginning in verse 25 of Daniel 4, They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat, the gra eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. And seven times, that would be years in this case, shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. 
That definitive statement has not changed from Daniel chapter 4 to today. In 2015, what we can still know is that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and gives those kingdoms to whomsoever He will. At the end of Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, and now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the Most High God who is God forevermore. And Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson and when he learned his lesson, God gave him back His kingdom. And this is the message that extends to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject, literally subordinate, obey higher powers. There is no government power, there is no person in a position of power who is not there by divine consent. And, by, uh, and as this is the case, verse 2 naturally follows. He says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, that word literally meaning to oppose, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Literally, whosoever opposes God's ordained authority of the government is likewise opposing the God who ordained it. And we and we'll find that their opposition to God's divinely established authority of government will be judged as opposition to God, and that person will receive unto themselves damnation. That word literally meaning judgment or evil. Now. As I say that, I hope that that causes you to kind of chafe a little bit. Because it stands as a very open-ended statement, doesn't it? Obey government, obey God, disobey government, disobey God. That's what the kings of the 16th to 18th centuries thought. They call it the divine right of kings, meaning they could do whatever they wanted because they were ordained of God. And you couldn't do anything about it because if you did anything about it, then you were going against them, which meant you were going against God. But thank God the Bible is not just written in little six-verse snippets. It's written in context. And as we look at the context and continue in the context, we find that the text presents that the submission that the believer is intended to place themselves under as it pertains to government, earthly government, is only within the realm of the authority that God has ordained for government. May I say that again? That the extent to which you are asked by God to submit to government only goes so far as the extent to which God has given the government authority. When government usurps authority that God has not given to it, nowhere in Scripture does God place us under the obligation of submitting to their usurped authority. Okay? God has ordained three primary institutions for the function of society family, church, and government. Each institution has unique elements of authority that are exclusive to itself, yet are intended to work together one with another in order to create a stable society functioning under the authority of God and His Word. Now, problems in society come whenever one or more institutions step into the authority of others, usurp the authority that God has given to another institution. So when the church becomes so deeply connected with the government that the church begins to usurp the, the authority of the state, that the church begins to use the power of the state to enforce church dogma, society suffers. Likewise, when the government places its hands into the church and begins to dictate and legislate what can or cannot be done in the church and begins to use government power to place its authority on the church and its teachings, society suffers. And this is the intent of the First Amendment. 
This is the intent. Not that there can be no religion in government, but rather that government should have no power over the church and the church should have no power over the government. Likewise, when the government steps into the authority of the family, seeking to overrule the ordained authority and responsibility of parents with regard to their children, society suffers. When the church steps into the authority of the family, seeking to overrule the family with the church, society suffers. They are intended to work with exclusive elements of authority that God has given to each institution and as they work together, society becomes stable and prosperous. So we understand that God has ordained government, but we recognize that the authority that God has given government is limited to its scope. By extension, the responsibility that a believer has to the government to submit is limited to the scope of the authority that God has given. And what is this authority? Well, Paul continues in verse 3 of Romans chapter 13. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. The authority that government has, the authority which we are commanded to submit ourselves unto as believers, is the authority to be a terror to evil, to punish evildoers, to protect life and liberty of its citizens, to secure a peaceful society that allows the other institutions, family and church, to function safely within the liberty that God has given. Does this sound familiar at all? The second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence states this, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The paragraph goes on to say, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. The document states very wisely that the form of government is not the issue when it comes to governments, but rather the problem is when a government begins to allow evil to operate unhindered or becomes a part of the very evil that God has ordained them to punish. And thus the government is a part of the problem in hindering life and liberty rather than a God-ordained means of protecting life and liberty. And within this, Paul's warning then about resisting the authority of God is a warning against opposing the government in its God-ordained authority to make and to enforce laws. The text is not stating that it is our responsibility to submit uh, only to the extent or to the degree that government does a good job at making those laws. Just because we don't agree with a law doesn't inherently mean that we don't um, obey that law, but when the government begins to make laws or enforce laws that step into the authority of other institutions, this is where the conflict begins. As the institution of government creeps into the authority of the church and creeps into the authority of the family, there is no biblical precedent that would compel us to submit to that government overreach. Rulers are ordained not to work in opposition to good works, 
but to work in opposition to evil. By giving governments this authority, God intends that those who would desire to do evil would be hindered by their natural fear of consequences. This is when you're driving down the road and you look down at the speedometer and you're going 10 over the speed limit and you hit the brakes to get a little bit farther, closer to that range of the speed limit because you know that if a police officer saw you, he would pull you over. That's the fear that government making laws and enforcing laws should instill in, in people to keep them doing right. Likewise, Paul states that those who are doing good ought to, in a functioning government, be able to function without fear, rather expecting praise of their rulers for their obedience and submission. And this will secure both a stable and a peaceful society. When the government is busy about the work of securing for the church and for the family the freedom to live out their institutions and responsibilities before God honestly. And why is this? We find that in verse 4. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou wilt do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And this is where we see the extent of the government's authority, that the government has the authority given by God to seek out and to punish evildoers, having the power to bear the sword, thus implying that the government has both the authority and the responsibility to punish evildoers all the way to the extent of taking the life of an evildoer, if necessary, in order to secure peace, stability, and liberty in the society for which they serve. And as they perform this duty, the scriptures say they do so as a minister of God, a divinely ordained minister to be the executor of God's wrath upon evildoers in this age. And may I just pause for a moment and bring this into contemporary culture. The last two years have been difficult years for police officers as we have seen incident after incident after incident of uh, officer-involved shootings that have ended in death, and typically those that have ended with an a, um, officer with white skin killing an, uh, a person with black skin, and as these uh, circumstances have been frothed and foamed and brought to, to points of contention, uh, there have been many that have been speaking about tremendous police overreach, and uh, no authority to do what they do. Now, there's little doubt that there are a large number of policemen that abuse their authority. Having been closely connected to the criminal justice system for the past 15 years of my life, I can vouch for the fact that there are many corrupt officers, many officers who don't see themselves as being uh, under the same rules that they're asked to enforce. But may I say as well that the number that are corrupt are nowhere near the number that are honest. And the idea that police authority is invalid or that police are not justified to wield deadly force in appropriate situations is anti-biblical because this verse tells us that they are. In fact, if we regard all the facets of government's intervention into society today, one of the only facets of government intervention that is biblically sanctioned is law enforcement. The man who bears the sword does so as a minister of God to execute wrath upon evildoers. So Paul says in verse 5, wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Christians are to submit to the laws of government and the enforcers of those laws 
created to foster a stable society because if they do not, then they run the risk of suffering the wrath of God. Also the wrath of government as they break laws, right? But finally, he says, also for conscience sake, conscience sake, excuse me, by doing so, you bear a right conscience, not just before God, but before the world. You have a right testimony in the world. For the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ in society, it is essential that we, to the extent that we are able biblically, align ourselves with the government and submit ourselves to it. And Peter spoke of this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. He said this, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the, pray, for the punishment of evildoers. Remember, there's the purpose again. And for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The will of God is that you would submit yourself to unusurped, properly ordained, biblical government authority, God-ordained authority, and by doing so, by placing yourself under that authority, you are effectively negating all of those people who would seek to call Christians nothing more than rebellious revolutionaries, looking to establish Christ's kingdom on this earth, answering to no authority but a book written thousands of years ago. And Christians can begin to bear this reputation in society of just being a bunch of rebels, of just being a bunch of dissenters, of working to cripple the society within which they were. That's what happened in the Roman government. That's why Christian persecution became so strong in the Roman government. And Paul says, if you will submit yourself to the properly ordained authority of, God, of, of government, then you will cut off, you will, you will cut off at the pass the ignorance of foolish men who think that we're just here to overthrow government and create this theocracy. This is not the testimony that God wants of believers. God wants us to be above reproach, void of offense before God and before men. He's not asking us to create God's kingdom on earth. Christ will do that. It's our job to live under the government he's ordained for us for this time. And Paul further explains then in verse 6, For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. He's spoken of the responsibility of government to secure peace for the people and the responsibility of the people thus to submit themselves to that authority. And a natural part of this submission is that people who are beneficiaries of the government's security support the government with their taxes. Citizens give a portion of what they earn to secure for themselves and for everyone else a stable society and to continue to support the family and the church as institutions in their society. Now, we've considered the biblical record concerning the authority and the responsibility of government and we who are citizens as born-again believers. Now, as we come to the final part of the message, I would like us to consider what's missing here. Now, I've never uh, preached a message uh, that has this perspective before, but, but as you think about government authority, what's missing? As you compare the government structure of our nation, state, local, federal levels, 
you find that the picture of our government today is dramatically different from that which is presented in Romans 13. For decades, our government has been encroaching into the God-ordained responsibility of family, going beyond God's mandate to secure for us the liberty to operate in peace and safety and mandating aspects of family life. The government has taken it upon itself to become the role of educator, a role which is given to the family and the church. The government has taken upon itself the role of caretaker, a role which is given to the family and the church. And now we see, we've seen it for decades, but becoming more and more apparent that the government is beginning to take large steps into the authority of the church. Taking by force this authority to declare what is moral and not by law as if somehow human laws can change or define biblical morality. And this is a particular area that the church doesn't necessarily have authority over. The church doesn't define morality either. But the church has the authority to, de to declare. The church has been given the authority by God to declare biblical morality as taught in the Word of God. And history bears record that as government takes larger and broader roles in a society, the mindset of the people begin to change. So that effectively, family and church are seen in the minds of the people as becoming subsets of the government. And when this happens the government takes on a mantle that it does not have authority to take on and really it begins to take on the mantle of deity, does it not? That the government becomes the supreme authority under which family and under which church operate. That when people think of what is right and wrong, they don't think of what the Bible says, they think of what the government says. Did we not see that two weeks ago? All of a sudden, nine people, five out of those nine people, say something is okay, or more specifically, something's not okay, which is laws against sodomy, sodomite marriage. And now, all of a sudden, people's mindset says, oh, it must be okay then. They have just made those nine people, five of those nine people, their God, dictating their morality. This is idolatry. When people want solutions to their problems, they don't run to the God of the Bible, they run to their government. When people want to know how to raise children, they don't run to the Bible, they run to their government. When people want to curb behavior, they don't use the power of the gospel, they use the power of the government. And this is the very essence of idolatry. Placing something higher in priority, higher in authority than God. And when a government does this, when they step outside the boundaries of their authority and seek to claim authority over other God-sanctioned institutions, it is not the obligation of the believer to yield the biblical distinctives and the biblical authority of the, institute, the other institutions to government, to their overreach and to their usurpation. Much rather, it is at this point, at the conflict between government authority and biblical command, that we echo the words of Peter and the apostles as they stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name, that would be Jesus, and behold, 
Ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And so as born-again Christians, our mindset should be naturally different than the rest of the world in key areas of life. And there are areas where we ought to be willing to obey God rather than to obey men. In the area of child training, we recognize that discipline of a child is a biblical mandate laid out several times in the wisdom chapters of Proverbs, even though our society looks down upon it. There are degrees, and and I'm not telling you where to draw your lines today. I'm not going to tell you all of those. I'm going to mention some lines, but I'm not going to tell you that. We have the Word of God, you have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and we each have to draw a line where the Holy Spirit tells us to draw a line. But government overreaching the family is a reality. In education, we recognize that parents are responsible to bring up their children and nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that it is not the government's right or privilege to strip parents of their authority or to force-feed our children the religion of secular humanism that pervades schools in this country. That's not their authority. They have no right to do that. Now, if you, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, choose to send your children uh, toward a public school setting, that's your authority to do so. And as long as you're operating under your authority and you're right with the Holy Spirit on that, I'm not going to speak against that. Uh, I was public school educated myself, as were many in this room. But when the government seeks to strip the authority of you to make that decision, there's a problem. And there's one more area of government overreach that I'd like us to consider because even among solid Bible-believing Christians, we can really struggle with our mindset on this one. And the reason is because even though we know that this area is an area of government overreach and it's detrimental to to the society as a whole, and even though we know that God and His Word has provided adequate substitution for it, it's so easy and convenient that we've allowed it to touch our lives, and in doing so, I believe we've lost an area of testimony among the world that could deeply impact our testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before I get into this, let me just lay a little bit of a, of a foundation here. First, let me say this. It's unavoidable that the way I'm going to interpret the Word of God and what I'm going to say is going to touch lives here, whether it's your lives or whether it's the lives of people you know, toes will be stepped on. I'm not trying to pick a fight, nor do I ever ask you to simply take what I say at face value and say, well, pastor says this, so it must be true. You have the Holy Spirit of God, you have the Word of God, and you're, you know your pastor's been wrong before. I've had to tell you from the pulpit I've been wrong before. I've had to tell you as individuals I've been wrong before. You know your pastor doesn't get everything right. And there are areas in life where we each are going to draw a line. And as long as I said before, as you biblically and honestly approach the Word of God, open the Bible, find your reasoning, and prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to give you peace. And if the Holy Spirit is not convicting your heart, then far be it from me to tell you not, not to do something, unless it's, of course, openly stated in the Scripture, in which case you're not being honest with the Word of God. And so I'm not here to pick that fight with you this morning. You have a Bible and I encourage you to prayerfully open it and see where God stands. Second, I'm not giving generalized, dogmatic, across-the-board statements as application. I'm going to make generalized statements this morning. And you're going to say, Pastor, 
You're generalizing here. You don't understand the circumstances. How can you speak for or against? And what I'm going to do this morning is lay out biblical principles. And if you've been with us for any degree of time or heard my, my sermons in the past, you know that we have three levels of biblical teaching, right? We have precepts, we have principles, and then we have standards. The precepts are the thus saith the Lord's. The principles are things which are exampled in Scripture, and the principles are the examples upon which we build our personal standards. And those personal standards are going to vary based upon where we feel we need to place them in order to properly um, and rightly obey the principles of God's Word and to align ourselves with the with the precepts of God's Word. And so I'm going to be giving you principles this morning. And I'm going to extend those principles and help you or try to get you to think about some things. But I'm not standing behind this pulpit to judge you in your decisions. When you stand before God one day, I won't be your judge. I have no say in that day. You have to stand before God and answer to Him honestly for what you understood from the Word of God and how you obeyed the Word of God. You don't answer to me. You don't answer to Legacy Baptist Church. But don't play games with God. Don't try to explain away what you might be doing wrong simply because it's convenient or you like it. And finally, last little thing before we move into this, Due to the nature of our society, the very fabric of how it's built, we understand that certain elements of government overreach um, are baked into society now. There are things that we literally at this point can't really help. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty about things that you can't help this morning either. Again, please take this teaching in the spirit with, its, with which it is intended to present unto you principles and as those principles lay out in your life, I'm not telling anybody in this room that what you're doing is inherently wrong. If the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God are convicting your heart, I, I, I wholly encourage you to take a look at that and find a comfortable place. My family and I have done that in our own lives as well. Say, Pastor, what are we talking about this morning? We're talking about this final area where I want to encourage us as believers to be careful with, and that's the area of Christian involvement in the welfare state. Christian involvement in the welfare state. It is argued, and with solid context, that people need assistance. And within this context, it is both honorable and commendable that those who have give to the needs of those who do not. The purpose of government welfare, as originally intended, was to provide a lifeline for those who are temporarily in need to get back on their feet. And this is not inherently a poor thing. But this is not generally the case today, is it? The very nature of the way I've described that, it's not government welfare anymore, is it? It's the welfare state. It's literally people being propped up in their lazy attitudes and their lazy intentions by living off of government assistance. It's propping up laziness and entitlement in our society. And we could spend hours, of course, speaking about that, government bureaucracy and inefficiency and all of those things, but that's not why we're here today. We're not here to talk politics. We're here to talk Bible. I'm not here to question or debate the legitimacy of these programs as a whole, but what I am here to question or debate is the legitimacy of our involvement and the degree to which we as believers are willing to be involved in this 
system. And why do I question this? I take you to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, where Jesus says this, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take no thought. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, as we read this passage, we find Jesus speaking to his disciples and giving a promise. The promise is this. If you will seek first the kingdom of God and you will seek first his righteousness, then you will never need to put thought or concern to what you will eat or what you will drink or whether you'll be closed. That if you will seek first the kingdom of God, then on the authority of God's word, you will never lack the basic necessities for life and family. Now, as we consider this principle... The deeper we go into allowing the government to be the lifeline as the means of our support is the, the further we get from allowing God to be that divine assistant. Is there any way it can be said that God is going to use this program that doesn't discriminate between God's children or not God's children. The unbeliever and believer alike can take advantage of the same things and yet somehow that becomes the vein of God's provision for this life. Can that rightly and biblically be said? Can we rightly frame our minds to say that God is providing, that this is God's divine provision when in fact, if I were to go to an unbeliever and say, yep, I prayed and God provided this for me, this welfare check, and they say, hey, I got that welfare check too and I didn't even have to pray. Is there any glory? Is there any provision? Is there anything in that system that can rightly be point back to God as your source of provision? Can a believer rightly accept these, this assistance heavily and then claim that this is God's provision? Can that government assistance in this nation and at this time in history ever be a testimony of faith in God's provision? And I hope you do see a little bit of a contradiction here. Can we not entertain the notion that by accepting that assistance by the government, we are somehow stepping outside of what God may have otherwise provided for us as a means of assistance? perhaps a means that would greater provide an opportunity for others to glorify God in us? Is it not possible that falling back upon this government welfare system might more be a sign of our fear 
that God won't provide than it is of a means of God truly providing. The Bible tells us that God has given the responsibility of the church and of the believer to provide one for another. Ephesians 4.28 Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Acts 20.35 I have showed you all these uh, all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Does not James in James chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 say, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? God says, Church, It is your responsibility to provide for the needs of those who are among you. Church, it is your privilege to provide for the needs of those that are among you. Church, those of you that have plenty, it is your privilege to give to those that are in need. And then those of you that are in need, when the Lord gets you through and he starts to bless you once again and you begin to get plenty, now it's your privilege and responsibility to give to the next person in need. And this is how God has ordained needs to be met. God has not ordained the government to create massive bureaucracies and to create programs that, 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 make, that formulate these lifelines. Now, understandably, those things are needed for a, a secular society. And government most likely needs to be the, the, the outlet for that in a secular society. But we are not secular people. We are believers. Perhaps considering this from another perspective, last week in Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, we spoke of how we as God's elect are called to be rightly related to God so that we can show forth the blessings of this unique relationship with God and others can see the power and goodness of God through our lives. Imagine the difference it would make in society if believers decided that when times got tough, instead of running to the government, we ran to prayer And we circled the wagons and as believers, we helped one another. That instead of falling back upon the lifeline of the government, we fall back upon the lifeline of God's provision. We get on our knees. We claim the promises of God. We get busy doing what God wants us to do. We seek first the kingdom of God and we lay our basic necessities at God's feet. And then our neighbors would look at us and say, you're crazy. You're crazy. It's there for you. The government is there for you. And we could look at them and say, we don't need the government. We have a God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And then God would provide because he always does. And they would look and say, wow, look at that. And they'd see one family and then that next Christian family and then that next Christian family and then that church and then that church. And next thing you know, the church of Christ would have a reputation in society of not using the government as the lifeline because they have a God that can do it. And what a testimony in society that would be. But do you think perhaps a part of the impotence of church and society is that we are not allowing God to do what He's promised us He would do? Instead, we run, our, we, we run into problems and we solve them the way any unbeliever does. And in doing so, we can't have the testimony that perhaps God would have us to have. And this method of living takes deep faith, patience, making ourselves vulnerable, 
to a church, to other believers, but I truly believe this is where God wants us. And on the authority of God's word and with the example of godly men of years gone by as our guide, I can tell you this morning that to whatever degree you're willing to place your faith in God to provide, you will not be disappointed. Again, please take these in the spirit which is intended. I am not dogmatically telling you that the source of your problems or, or that uh, um, the, the direction that you have cha- taken your family or you as an individual is wrong. I know that circumstances are different for every person. And I, I'm presenting biblical principles and I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to place them in your life in the right place. And as the 4th of July comes and goes in this country, many of us rejoice over the thankfulness that we have in this country, but we grieve over the direction our country is headed. However, it's our privilege to live above what's going on right now. It's now our responsibility as God's people to show the world that Christians don't have problems, because we do. And to say that becoming a Christian alleviates problems is to really lie, right? Because that's not true. But what we have been called to do in this life is to show the world that the way Christians handle the problems that all people face is dramatically different because we serve a different king. We don't serve king government. We don't serve king Obama. We don't serve king Dayton, we serve King Jesus. But if the way that we live is entirely consistent with those that do serve government, those that do rely on government, then what, what difference, I mean, what, what is the difference? if we approach our problems biblically founded in the reality that God has made these promises, then we can yet show the world an entirely different manner of living under an entirely different king. And while secular society has rejected the God of the Bible, rather asking the government to go beyond its God-given authority to fulfill a role of caretaker and as provider, effectively making the government their provider and thus their replacement for God's provision. We are God's followers. We have the privilege of walking a different path, resting in faith upon the goodness of God, upon the care of God, upon the provision of God, and ultimately resigned to the will of God. Having faith that as we seek first the kingdom of God and as we seek first his righteousness, all these things will be added unto us, that as we walk uprightly, God will withhold no good thing. And I would encourage each of us this morning to ask the Lord to search our hearts because our society is getting so used to government interference. At what points have we allowed the government, not just to touch our lives because it will, but at what points has our testimony among the world around us, our testimony even among other believers, been hindered by a lack of faith in God and too much faith? in the system that has been erected around us. And let's genuinely and sincerely consider that today as we close. Let's pray.